that God looks on our hearts and what he sees when he sees hearts that praise him, pleases him. Uh, let's just pray before we look at God's word. God, you're good in all that you do. And your ways are perfect. They're just, you're righteous and you're holy. And God, it's a privilege to come to one who is so holy and just and righteous and perfect and bring that which we have. God, we thank you for receiving our praise and our worship. Thank you for receiving our tithes and our offerings. And receive now the thoughts of our minds and the attitudes of our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would like, please, a volunteer to read Philippians 2. Not all of it. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 18. And if you don't have a Bible, that's not an excuse because I can give you mine. Theresa, thank you. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of, of of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but not now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, and that I and that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, if, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you, sh you also be glad and rejoice with me. Thank you. Sifisa. So the, the title of this sermon comes from something that Carlos said when he preached at Convergence and some of us were there, not all of you were. I'm not going to say what he said right now because it would give the answer to some of the questions. What's the loudest voice? So not who has the loudest voice. We might have an opinion or we might want to receive that title. But actions speak louder than? 
Actions speak louder than words, and what speaks louder than actions? Say again. Good. Attitudes speak louder than actions. Because, why do I say that? I didn't know which scripture Sally was going to use for the offering. Her actions didn't amount to much in monetary terms, but her attitude spoke louder. So what do we mean by attitude? Give me some synonyms. Or a definition if you're that brave. Say again. Yeah. Thank you. Amen. That's attitude. What are some synonyms for attitude? What do we mean? I just want us to explore for just a couple of minutes. Okay, perspective is one. There's lots. State of your heart. We'll go side to side. Expression. This side. True intentions. Back to here. We'll do it twice more. Motives. Agenda. One more. Mindset conviction. Two more. That's good. Um, what's the definition of a godly attitude? Now that's perhaps quite hard for you to... And there's different definitions and we can look at, at scripture. But we're encouraged by Paul when he writes to the Philippians to have the same attitude as Jesus. That's the godly attitude. So we're going to look at what Paul says about Jesus. We're going to look just very briefly, without reading the full scripture, of something that Jesus did that displayed his attitude. And that's what, that's what Carlos said. He said, let our attitude speak louder than our actions. And at first it might not fit, but I think we'd all see that it is true. This wasn't a big band, but an attitude of worship means that this band, front and back, can lead us in praise and worship. The actions, lots of instruments wasn't there, but an attitude means that we can. And just one thing, a godly attitude is not sinless perfection because otherwise Paul wouldn't encourage us to have one because he knows we can't do that your attitude should be the same as that in Christ Jesus it's not that we are perfect it's not that we do not sin it's that we wholeheartedly are devoted to God we have an attitude that means my life is one which is one of discipleship, following Jesus, following God's will. Let me ask this question. Why is theology important? Why does, why does Shofar have an institute where we teach theology? Why is theology important? What is theology? Let me ask that one. Dong just went on a short course. Um, travelled all the way to South Africa for less than a week to study God's word. I think Jesus in the Gospels, was it? So, I did the same a year ago, and I, I did a different course. Theology is what? Geology is the study of... And theology is the study of... Okay. So, why is it important that we study God? And you can use Philippians 2 as a clue. To understand him better so that we can then imitate him better. So, our knowledge determines my thoughts and my attitudes. And in turn, my thoughts and my attitudes determine my actions. 
That's why the attitudes speak louder. Because I can look at the action and know what the attitude is. Now I might be able to fool a few people on earth, but I can't fool God. And we just need to look at what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they pretended to give the whole when it was only a part. Their attitude was exposed and they died. Their attitude spoke louder than their actions. They may have thought, we are going to gain favor because of giving this whatever proportion it was from the sale. But their attitude spoke louder and hence they died. That's why theology is important because if we have to have the same attitude as that in Christ Jesus, we need to know what that is. We need to know about God so that we can have that attitude so that from knowledge comes attitudes and thoughts and then comes the actions. We can't stop here. We just need to read James to see that. And as I said, I didn't know the scripture that Sally would use. That widow was obviously devoted to God but she couldn't stop there. So our attitude will always be shown in our actions. So James says that faith without deeds is dead. I have a few more questions for you. And these are a bit easier to answer because they're yes or no. And they're the questions that Paul uses at the beginning of Philippians 2. They're not on the screen. So listen. Are you encouraged by being united with Christ? I almost want to assume a yes, but let me not assume a yes. Are you encouraged by being united with Christ? Okay, let me let's go a bit louder than that. I, I liked what I got, but are you encouraged by being united with Christ? Okay. The second question Are you comforted from his love? Third question Do you have fellowship with Holy Spirit? The fourth question. Do you have, and don't be hard on yourselves, do you have any tenderness? Good. Do you have any compassion? Or sympathy? Then, even if you answered yes to only one, but I heard lots of yeses, if that is the case, Paul says this, then, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. If that is the case, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. That's our theme for next year, not for now. But whether we're harvesting or building, harvesting from two years ago, or building our theme for this year, and being one, which we had lots of teaching at, at Convergence, but that's not our theme until 2017. We need unity. We can't harvest without unity. We can't build without unity. We can't be one, and that stands for itself, without unity. Be like-minded, have the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. The point is this, our attitude matters more to God than our aptitude. Our attitude matters more than our aptitude. Okay, I'll put it another way, our availability to God matters more than our ability to God. He gave us the abilities, he knows what they are, they're all from him. What's our choice is how available we make those to give back to him. The widow had a choice. And her attitude was such that she made the little that she had, although it was everything, she made it available because that was her attitude. God knows our abilities because he, he gave them to us. He knows which ones of us are good with numbers and which ones are good with letters. He knows which ones of us are good with paper and which ones of us are good with people. He knows all of that. 
God, Father, Son, Spirit knows us well. That's why each of them, Father, Son, and Spirit, when I say Son, those of us who are in leadership or being given a gift for leadership to equip saints. But all of us have a Father gift, whether we're saved or not. So when you see people, especially if you don't get on with them, even a family member, perhaps especially a family member, think, what Father gift, if you want the list, go to Romans chapter 12 and you'll see the list there. God is the Father of everyone and he's given at least one of those to everyone, whether they're saved or not. Anybody who is saved and has been born again by the Spirit of God has access to the gifts from Holy Spirit. All of them. Those of us who are saved, born again by God's Spirit, have access to all of those gifts. We learned that recently when we did Encounter One. And then Jesus' Son gives specific gifts to specific people so that they can lead God's people in ministry. God knows what we have because he's given it to us. What he leaves us to decide is how available we make those gifts to him. Will I use my gift for my own purpose? We often tell the children, one of the children asked this morning, because they often see Fred on our screens at home, why is Fred so famous? And, and we said, well, he's, he's actually not as famous as he could have been because he chose not to take a record deal which would have made him very famous. He chose to do what God called him to do. In other words, to make his gifts available for God, for him to use as he sees fit. Not to use them in such a way that would make him the most famous or give him the most money. We choose how we use our gifts and God doesn't take them away. If we choose to withhold them from him or not to use our gifts to bless the body, he doesn't take those gifts away. Paul tells us in Corinthians that God's call and gifts are irrevocable. Once given, he doesn't take them away. Let me ask this question. Which one of Jesus' attitudes speaks the loudest? And if we have the Philippians 2 verse, that will probably help you. If we're going to think of an attitude in Christ, which one? Okay, and that's a, that's a state. What kind of, what attitude does a servant have to have? And humility. A servant has humility. I am here to serve. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. So his humility should speak louder to us than his act on the cross. Because, and it's not that we ignore the cross, but when we see the cross, we think that the God of the whole universe made himself nothing and became human so that he could die by becoming ob- die in obedience to God's call on his life, even to death on a cross. Humility. What's humility? One definition, there's a few. One definition is to consider others better than me, brackets, even if... And Fred is very humble. He'll speak of other pastors within Shofar or outside of Shofar as if they're better than him. And he probably knows that we're not. But he speaks of us as if we are. Consider others better than yourself, even 
if they're not. Let me ask you, when, when, are you, when are you or when were you at your most humble? I, I'll tell you my answer. I th- one of the times when I was at my most humble was when I, when I got my medical degree. And the reason is because I realized I couldn't have done it without help from other people and help from God. And there's quite a specific story about the people in the room who were making the decision, which makes it very clear to me, because their decision could have gone either way. That this wasn't... I had to work hard, yes I did. I had to work for over a decade to get in and then to get through and jump through the hoops that most people have to jump through, and maybe a few extra ones as well. But I was humble because, one, I'd not always passed on my way through until my final year, and then then I did. And one of the things that I did in my final year was to make sure I took a, a full day off every week. So if you've got a deadline or a project, and you're thinking... How can I fit everything in? One way, I believe, is to take rest, to make your work more effective and efficient. Humility, for me, when I'm conscious of my own weakness, and therefore, I'm quick to give credit to God and to others. I'm quick to give credit to Scarpa, who taught me, as did many others. I'm quick to give credit to God for what I accomplished. And I did do it. I can use the title. But I'm quick to give credit. And I'm quick to give credit because I realize I couldn't do anything without the help. So how humble are we when we come to worship? When I realize that I can't have a relationship with God without help from him or help from others. The people who God used to teach me. The people who God used to lead me to Christ. I couldn't have done it on my own. And if we take humility another step, I couldn't have done anything without George and Angela Dean. I wouldn't have been anything. So I realize in that area of my life that it's not my strength that got me here. But I need to realize that in every area of my life. So when am I at my least humble? I'm not going to answer that one now. But I think we all need to ask ourselves those questions. When are we at our most humble? When are we at our least humble? What does success do to me? Does it make me more humble or does it make me less humble? I mentioned recently Don Carson and used some of his teaching on the gospel the last time I preached. One of the things that he said was this. We often in church spend all of our time trying striving, giving an impression that others will think highly of me. And I'm not saying that's always wrong, but what he said is this, Paul spent his life making sure that people did not think too highly of him. Because he was humble, because he realized he had a lot in terms of human knowledge, in terms of position and he realized that he's nothing before God and therefore he spent his life trying to make sure that other people didn't think too much of him because he was humble there's false humility, yes there's false humility 
So, if one of you were to congratulate the band after the service, and they were to say, well, it was all God. The answer could come back, well, what about the notes you missed? False humility, you could congratulate me on my sermon, it was all God, oh, what about the boring bits, eh? Where was God in the boring bits? God wants us to take credit where credit's due, but give credit where credit's due. And if we consider others better than ourselves, even when they're not, in brackets, then I think we're on a good starting point. So if we look at Philippians 2, we see that first comes all the attitudes. And only after the attitudes comes the actions. And that's exactly what Jesus did. First Jesus humbled himself, his attitude. He put himself in a certain place. And from that place of humility, then he acted by dying on the cross. And ours have to be the same. Our attitudes will determine our actions. That's why attitudes are important. That's why they speak louder than the words. Because they will determine the other in a way that actions won't determine our attitudes. We need to know God. Just one example, and I don't have this on the screen, but I'm just going to read a few verses from John chapter 13. What did Jesus do in John chapter 13. What's Jesus do that's recorded for us in John chapter 13? He washed the disciples' feet. Verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Verse 1. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, knowing. Then he washed their feet, even the one who was going to betray him. Verse 11. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. He knew his hour had come. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew who was going to betray him. And in verse 17, Jesus says to the disciples and now to us, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We cannot obey what we do not know. That's why teaching is important. That's why teachers are one of the gifts that Jesus gave to equip us, all of us, for ministry. We need to know so that we can follow. So we need to know, and that knowledge will determine our thoughts and our attitudes. And those thoughts and those attitudes will determine our actions. We need the knowledge. And we get that knowledge from Scripture. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, the characteristics of Holy Spirit, the characteristics of God revealed in Scripture. This is Word. Jesus is Word. Words must be known and understood. What does a word mean if it's not known? What does a word mean if it's not understood? And back to Philippians, it's not on the screen, but if you have your Bibles. Just read from verse 12, or glance at verse 12. How do we read scripture? What do we look for in scripture? We look for the verbs. Okay, again, very, very simple, but take someone like Fred just to tell us sometimes those simple things. So first we're given the example of humility, we're told to follow the example of humility, and then come the verbs. Obey. Not only in my presence, but more in my absence. Work out 
your salvation. Do all things without grumbling, without complaining, without disputing, without arguing, more doing. Be blameless, be pure or innocent, shine, hold out the word of life and rejoice. All the verbs come after the attitudes. First sort out your attitude and then start doing. If we try to do with an attitude in the wrong place, we won't get so far. We might be able to fool a few people. We might be able to keep something up for years or decades. But if our attitudes are not right, then don't focus on the verbs. I'm not saying we have to be perfect because God knows we can't be perfect. It's not sinless perfection that we're called to. We're called to follow the will of God. Wholehearted devotion. Unmixed devotion to the will of God. A godly attitude will disregard feelings. When Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross, that didn't happen at Calvary before Gethsemane happened. Jesus disregarded his feelings. Not my will. He disregarded his will. Feelings and will go together, but it was strong. He had a strong objection to doing what he knew he had been called to do. And Jesus did that because he was determined to follow God's will. Not my will, but yours be done. We need to be able to embrace God's will. One of the things that God said to me again when I was at Convergence, he said it to me when we were in Otford at Planted, he said it at the beginning of the year, when Carlos and Hercules and I, we went to the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And God's will for us is that we suffer, not as an end in itself, but as a means to an end. Fred's been speaking of suffering. We read about the fellowship of Christ's suffering. We won't know Christ fully unless we suffer in a way that he suffered. And he said, the world hated me and therefore the world will hate you. If we're not suffering, we're not following Christ. Now, there's different seasons and there's different places across the earth where that's much more stark than it is for us here. But I know that what God's saying is to me, to me, is embrace my will even for persecution. Embrace my will even for persecution. Don't run after pleasure, don't plan for pleasure, but prepare for persecution. Romans 12 verse 3 Paul's writing again it's Paul for by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned Don't think of myself more highly than I ought to think. Even if I am better, it's only because God's given me a gift. So it doesn't mean I'm better. So don't think of myself as if I am. Our attitude, how I think about myself. How do we think about ourselves? Do we think, God, actually, you've done quite well. You sh- you're quite... You're, it's quite a good position for you that I'm in your chair. I, I 
Shofa should be quite pleased that I've, I'm part of this church. Do we think of ourselves like that? Or do we realize that we can't even meet our own standards, let alone God's? It's not within us. We don't have that capacity. That's law. We can't meet this standard. And grace isn't a lowering of the standard. Grace is a raising of the standard. God says, I know you can't meet your own standard. So here's my grace to meet mine. If anyone tells you that grace is a lower standard, they're not reading scripture. The standards are higher. Under the old covenant, you had to murder to be guilty of murder. Under the new covenant, hatred is sufficient to be guilty of murder. It's a higher standard. Under the old covenant, you had to commit adultery to be an adulterer. Under the new covenant, all I need to do, all I need to do, in inverted commas, is to look lustfully on a woman and I'm guilty of adultery. It's a higher standard. But God's grace enables us to meet the higher standard. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. I can't say it's Paul. But listen to what we read in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Discerning the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I told you I wasn't the best student, but I, even I know the difference between joint and marrow. What the writer to the Hebrews is saying here is that the word of God discerns between joints and marrow, everything in the natural, those things that we see. That's the body, the physical world, and discerns between soul and spirit, the things that we don't see. And I think that's one way that we don't use the word as well as we can, as well as we ought to discern between my soul and my spirit. That's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. His spirit knew what he was called to do. His soul, his mind, his will, his emotions, his conscience, his attitude, his soul didn't want to go there. But because he knew God, even without the scripture that we have, because of his intimate, unbroken, up until the cross, unbroken relationship with God, he was able to discern, this is my soul, and it's speaking against my spirit. At times our souls will speak with our spirits, at times, but at many times they won't. Does it make sense to want persecution? Does it make sense for Jesus to want to go to that death on the cross? It doesn't make sense. But if we use the word of God to differentiate, to discern between the natural world, what I do with my body in the natural world, and to discern between my spirit and my soul. And what I fear is that many of us within the church, we lead with our souls. What my mind says, how I feel, will determine what I do. And scripture tells us to use this word, living and active. This living and active word, sharper than a double-edged sword. What does it mean? I used to think when I was young, you know, it means if one scripture doesn't get you, another one will. And, and maybe it does. What I know now as a preacher, it means it cuts both ways. So if I stand here and I say things, I know it's also going to cut me. I can't expect to come here and preach and not to be able to, to be willing to hold myself accountable. It cuts both ways. A double-edged sword. Discerning, dividing, soul and spirit and joints and marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart if you want to check your heart towards a certain person towards church read scripture because scripture will help you to do that it will help you to determine to discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart if you am i, am I right with that person do i how's my relationship with that person read scripture and this living and active word will discern 
between the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We know that Paul wrote Ephesians and in chapter 4, which is the chapter where earlier on we learn of those gifts of the Son given to equip saints to minister. Those gifts of the Son, prophet, apostle, pastor, teacher and evangelist. And then later on in the same chapter Paul writes this, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We were taught, Paul tells us, to put off our old self We all have an old self and we have to put it off. We all have one. We have to put it off because it belongs to our former manner of life. Hanku was a soldier but have any of us ever seen him in the uniform? It's his old life. He might be glad, I don't know, maybe parts of it he looks back on but he doesn't wear it anymore because it's not his life now I don't know what his clients would think if he turned up in a uniform and some ammunition or something in his back pocket it's his old way of life we all have one we all have one even if we were saved when we were a child we have an old way of life and we have to put it off put it off put it off it doesn't belong to me anymore. I don't know what happened to it. Maybe we passed it on, or it, but it, it's got no use. I mean, I don't know. You'll probably even be disciplined for wearing it, perhaps, or pretending to be a soldier when you're not. Some of us want to keep hold of this old way of life. Cling on to it. Keep it close. off our old self it belongs to the former manner of life be renewed in the attitude of your minds be renewed in the attitude of our minds that's what God does as we read scripture as we fellowship with God's people as we listen to Holy Spirit's voice we'll be renewed I used to think like that I used to think it was okay if I whatever put your own in there let me just pause while you do I used to think it was okay anyone need longer and now I know it's not I cannot think like that anymore I cannot have that attitude because if I have that attitude it will cause and lead to these actions and I know those actions are wrong We know that Peter wrote the letters that he wrote. One Peter four verse one. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. We need to start expecting suffering. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. I said earlier, God wants us to suffer. He wants us to know him in a way that we cannot know him outside of suffering, not as a means in itself, but as a means to an end so that we can finish with sin. That's why we need to suffer, so that we can overcome this old self, so that we can put this former self behind us. When did I last suffer for following Christ? When did you last suffer for following Christ? And if, if we're struggling, 
then maybe we just need to follow him a bit closer. And if, if that's too abstract, then just follow someone who is. Find someone who's suffering, for Christ's sake, and follow them. Even if it's praying for them. Fred and I met somebody just on the day that we started Planted, and he made reference to this church leader who faces opposition from within the body, but faces such opposition from outside of the body that he tells the CEO of their company, if my wife and I are taken hostage when we're away, he makes the staff sign to say, you will not pay a ransom for me. It's for the sake of Christ that he travels. He's not going to make money or do deals. He's going to help the persecuted church. And his staff, senior staff, saying, we will not pay a ransom if you are taken hostage. Now that might be outside of our frame of reference. But we can pray for him. If you want to pray for him, his name's Patrick. His wife's name's Rosemary. But if we follow Christ, we'll find some suffering. Now there's suffering that's unnecessary and suffering that's necessary. Christ doesn't want us to suffer unnecessarily. He doesn't want us to suffer for being terrible at whatever. That's unnecessary. He wants us to suffer because we're following him. And, you know, maybe sometimes we bring suffering on ourselves and that's just foolish of us as a church or as individuals. If we suffer, it's for doing good. If we suffer, it's so that we can get to know Christ better, so that we can finish with sin. We can't finish with sin unless we suffer. I made reference to planted. And we had a bonfire. And there's nothing wrong with having a bonfire. Children love it. But I'm looking at this hot fire and thinking back to what we learned just before Empower 21. That people in our city, even teenage girls, were burned at the stake for their faith. In our city, not hundreds of miles away. And there's nothing wrong with enjoyment. But I believe that God's saying to us, start preparing for persecution. And if we're humble, then we will. If we're humble, we'll accept that my thoughts, which might say preserve myself, even preserve myself for the sake of my children. Even a selfless thought like that might not be in submission to God's thought. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And let's put it plainly, the church hasn't finished with sin, have we? We struggle sometimes to love one another, let alone love our neighbour. We've not yet finished with sin. So let's suffer so that we can get further to that finish line with sin. Let me ask some questions just before we go into communion. For whose sake do I live? Or for whose sake do I work? Why do I go to work? Why am I alive? For whose sake do I play? Whatever it is, sport or shopping or anything, the things that I do because I want to do them in my own time. For whose sake do I go to small group? on a Sunday or go to intercession one last scripture before we then have a scripture for communion we won't split into small groups today we'll 
Muslim have communion together. Jeremiah 32, verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way. I'll give them singleness of heart and action. The attitudes, the heart will determine the action. So that they will always fear me and that all will then go well with them and for their children after them. How do we tie that together? Persecution, suffering, going well. We look at Jesus. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then what? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him this Philippians 2 verse 8. Verse 9. Bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's going well for Jesus, and we're not his children, we're his siblings. He's the firstborn of many. That's what he wants to do. He wants to say, you're part of this inheritance. I have this inheritance, and you can be a co-heir with me. And it's not just for our sakes. Many of us are parents, not all of us, some of us are parents, some of us are soon to be parents, some of us are wanting to be parents at some stage in our lives. Follow God with singleness of heart and action so that it will go well for our children. I think I may have said this two weeks ago, but I want to say it again. There was a blue plaque put up in Tooting because the youngest soldier to, known to have gone in World War I was from Tooting. He went when he was 12 before his mum told the authorities he's actually 12 and he was sent back home. And I said to the children, well, you know, maybe you'll have a blue plaque one day. And they said, Jesus might come back before then. Where's our thinking? Where's our thinking? How long do we have to fulfill this vision that God's given to Shofar, which is part of the Great Commission that everyone within the body is serving? How long do we have? We don't know how long we have. Humility, an attitude that's the same as that of Christ Jesus. Became obedient to death, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, humbled himself, now he's exalted if someone can either from the back or the just bring in the the crackers and the juice he's the one we remember when we have communion have communion in your homes have communion in your small groups have communion wherever you're, uh, you're with God's people one of the children, please. One of the children asked, "Can they have communion?" And I said, "I'm not leading shine today, but if we don't have it with them here, we'll have it at home." Because it takes us back to Jesus. It takes us back to Him.
pause before we share together. Just to consider the one we remember, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for speaking to us in many different ways as the writer to Hebrews reminds us. Thank you for speaking supremely through your Son, who is Word, who acted by dying on the cross. whose attitude speaks louder even than the action on the cross. Lord Jesus, we honour you for your work on the cross and we honour you this morning for your humility. Which led you there knowing you would be separated from your Father. And God, thank you. Father God, thank you for what you did on the cross. For what you went through in that separation. And Holy Spirit, we honour you, we acknowledge you as the one sent to make us one, as you, the Son, and the Father are one. Jesus, your blood makes us one. We're one because we're a spiritual blood family with you. Thicker than water. God, I thank you for natural family. I thank you for every natural family represented in this room. I thank you for parents in this nation and parents in others. I thank you, God, that you've saved us so that we can be your means of redemption to families, to parents and to siblings. 
nephews and to aunts and to uncles. God, thank you for establishing family. And Lord Jesus, thank you that your blood shed on the cross means that we can become God's children, part of the family of God. And I thank you for the children learning to follow you while they're young. Help us, God, to learn from them. Bless those who teach them. May our example be one which they can follow. But I thank you for the child to be born within this room. Thank you for all the children who not yet conceived in your mind to be part of this preparing the way for your return Lord Jesus thank you that your blood is still strong thank you that your blood still speaks thank you that it is still powerful and it has not lost any of its ability to accomplish the reason for which you shed it Lord Jesus Stay as long as it 